Welcome back to Troubleshooting Agile. Hi there, Jeffrey. Uh, good morning, Squirrel. You ready to uh, pick up from where we left off last time? I think so. We had a good idea about what we might pick up with, and that was encapsulating your learning, i.e. taking all these things we've been talking about, like double loop and single loop learning and uh, um, pre-planned actions, things that you can do when you've learned something in your team, for example, at the end of a retrospective, and what you can do with it. Right, and we, we had covered that uh, encapsulated learning in our last uh, chapter, and you had the, uh, the brainwave saying, hey, there's a way that we might organize this. Indeed, because I, I often see people coming out of a retrospective at one of my clients, um, and they'll say, great, we had lots of super ideas, now what? And you can sort of assign it to someone and say, we hope that we'll do things, but often people walk out saying, well, we'll, we'll just remember this next time. And <laughs> I, I never feel very satisfied with that result. Right. So you said we would get into the topic, your uh, preferred way of uh, managing this, which is, uh, which is checklists. What's, what's that? Tell, tell me about checklists. Well, so the, the kind of classic work on this is by Atul Gawande. I hope I'm saying his name right. And it's the, the Checklist Manifesto. See the link in the show notes, as always. The Checklist Manifesto describes how checklists are used all over the place. I think the, the place people are probably most familiar with them is in airplanes. So you can uh, see videos and, and they often come up in movies and things. There, there's somebody who is flying a plane and before takeoff has to walk around the plane and make sure that a number of different things are working or an engine fails and so they have to follow a certain set of steps in order to make sure that um, they, they don't crash the plane. And it turns out these are remarkably useful all over the place, not just in flying airplanes. Gawande's uh, research, at least quite a bit of it in the uh, 2000s, was based on the use and his advocacy for the use in medicine. And he was saying that we could make uh, remark remarkable difference in outcomes uh, by better use of checklists and uh, really enforcing it. And I, I think it was his work that led me to one of the really surprising uh, findings uh, which was the what what difference it made to to station a nurse by the door of the operating room and ensure that everyone entering the room washed their hands seems obvious we've known about washing hands for 100 150 years yeah, but yeah. people still forgot yes exactly and that and that to me was the real value of of this kind of approach it said it's this is not a question of um, new knowledge of giving people information that they didn't have it's not like the doctors walking into the room didn't know that they should wash their hands before seeing different patients. And the airplane pilot knows that before you take off, you should check how much fuel you have and make sure there's enough to get to where you're going. That's a pretty clear, obvious thing. And if you ask them explicitly, they'd know that. But the fact is that people forget to fuel their airplanes and people forget to wash their hands before operating on patients because humans make mistakes. That's right. And uh, it, uh, in our sort of uh, lead-in preparing for this, uh, I looked into... Uh, the, the idea of a pre-flight checklist in aviation and apparently goes back uh, to the Boeing Corporation and they uh, in 1939 there was a fatal crash uh, using of a B-17 bomber prototype where the, the pilots had left uh, one of the, the uh, gust locks in place which is something that would make sure the control surfaces don't move in the wind when it, the plane is parked on the ground you kind of want your your elevators and ailerons and things and the things that make the plane go up and down and back left and right 
you want those to work when you're in the air, though. That's right, exactly. And they had left those in place, and that led to the crash. And that, and then that sort of, sort of obvious mistake led to this adoption of checklists. And uh, I, I had firsthand experience with it. I, I used to be a glider pilot, something I had learned to do uh, in when my teenage years. And in fact, I think just for uh, purple, personal purposes, we should add a link to the Schweitzer 233 glider pre-flight inspection video, uh, uh, just for uh, nostalgia for myself. But it is the, absolutely riveting one of the first one of the first uh, bits it starts off with is always use a checklist so it the, the which for me is this is something that in the the uh, realm of flight is uh, well known so even a, a, a novice teenager learning to fly an unpowered glider gets drilled in the same kind of discipline you'd have for uh, a, a pilot of the most expensive type of uh, craft you might imagine and what's interesting for me is how useful this is in software and uh, um, agile teams and, and so on. I remember reading the checklist manifesto and thinking this would be really useful for capturing what I learn. And then I have a, a, a bunch of opportunities to apply that in the last 10, 15 years, which have been really, really helpful. One that um, I'm reminded of is a startup that I worked with uh, early in my consulting career which was very language focused. So they were translating documents from a zillion different languages. Um, and I know some of them will listen to this podcast. So, so hi folks. But um, what they would do is um, make sure that because they had only one QA person who was doing manual checking of the, uh, the software as well as the automated tests, that person actually went and laminated, um, you know, made glossy sheets of a checklist which had different words in different languages on it and different um, uh, uh, types of things you might test in Hebrew and Japanese and Tagalog. I didn't even know Tagalog was a language. Um, and he would put these on all the desks of the developers and he'd say, before you bring me something to test, I want you to tick off that all these things are done. And make sure that you have tested in each of these different varieties of language and each of these different types of words that we might need to translate and all the weird right to left and up to down and other sorts of um, characteristics that the languages might have. And he found that very, very helpful because just like a pre-flight checklist before you get into an airplane, it was making sure that kind of the basics were there before he got in and could test the specific feature he was trying to work with. Yeah, that's that's fantastic, and that's a great example of of a pure checklist where it sort of you know tick everything off, and you don't move from one stage to the next until that checklist is is completed. Which interesting for me is that, that these things do kind of blend. There's one sort of simple you know, checklist, and this fits very well the encapsulated learning, right? If if you are going to move to the next stage, then make sure you've checked all of these things. But there's there's some things that are, are less pure, and we'll add another link to the show notes from. Um, Elizabeth Hendrickson has this great uh, test heuristics cheat sheet, and what it has is a little bit different. It's not it's not like um, the one you're describing. This sort of very distilled checklist of things that you must do, um, and because it's more generic, it's not designed for uh, simply checking that, that all these languages are supported. It's more sort of things that you might consider when uh, testing your code. And I found it very interesting because it's it is a list of things that people might think of, and it puts them all together. So it's very handy. It's very good for um, sparking your imagination, sparking your thoughts of like, yep, have I have I considered all these different types of things? Um, but it's not nearly as uh, directive. It's not nearly as prescriptive of simply do you know each of one, two, three, four. But in in all these cases, it, it and this one in particular, it, it's 
uh, reminding you of things you already know. So an experienced tester will already know that you should test for memory exhaustion and that you should test for negative inputs and all kinds of other crazy things. And if you ask that person to write them all down, would come up with some of, maybe not all of, Elizabeth's list. But the thing is, if you have it in front of you, it reminds you, it makes your brain actually switch on and say, ah, I need to do that one, which I already know. I need to wash my hands, which I already know. Yes, that's right. And that's a good point. And it's telling you about these things that you already know, um, but it's not necessarily giving you like exact steps of how to do it, right? Mm -hmm. you're, you're, the, the checklist for the doctors that says, you know, wash your hands, you know, it, 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 it probably doesn't describe every step. Turn on the hands. faucet, then put your yeah. <laughs> hands under the faucet. It doesn't give you the, the detail because that that would you, you, there are lots of examples of scripts that people follow and testing is the most common example of this where somebody will have a 500 page booklet book of uh, all the different steps that you should follow. I had one uh, company I worked with long long ago that had they spent two weeks every two weeks so they just start again at the end of the two weeks and they'd simulate two weeks in the life of their client. And they had a whole book that they, you know, it's, it's Thursday must be time for page 422. And they'd go do a, a <laughs> sequence of very, very detailed steps. It, I, I think that's not what we have in mind, right? That's d definitely not. And that's, I, I, I lived that experience in the 90s, um, had done QA where uh, all of the test scenarios, when people described a test case, what they meant was a, 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 a written set of steps put out for a, a human tester to go through and follow and the expectations that you'd follow it precisely. Click I, this button and then yeah. when the prompt comes up, type exactly these letters and then press enter and then et cetera. Yeah. And my, my exposure to, to uh, Guandi and his work uh, around before he wrote the checklist manifesto, there was a um, New Yorker article called the checklist. And actually I'll put a link here to a blog that I wrote uh, back in 2000, well, I think it was 2007. Um, where I said I wanted to make software like intensive care or bombing missions, and it was it was really uh, coming out of the same idea. Like, how can we bring these ideas of checklists into software? But at the same time, I open up with this warning that um, I was trying to explain <clears throat> at the time to a friend about why I thought manually executed scripts, and there was scripts for humans, were worse than useless. And I and I think this is sort of this it's it's worth then taking teasing apart. Like, what's different between a script for a human that says do this then that then that step by step as compared to uh, a checklist um, and also as we compare it to you know what what should the computer be doing for us so the uh, the classic testing example from from the QA world is uh, manual test scripts versus uh, computer executed um, tests the the kind that we know and love today but in 1998 didn't really exist um, the, the computer can run, and then exploratory testing, which is more the heuristics of uh, the, like Elizabeth's cheat sheet. Those are the, the three kinds of varieties that we've got in, in the QA world. Yeah, in the QA world where you have sort of, the, it, at the early 2000s, there was this sort of uh, battle between the, the traditional testers who were big into their test scripts and this um, new idea of exploratory testing uh, where you get people like Elizabeth or uh, Michael Bolton or James Bach who were saying, look, let humans be humans. And I remember being at a, I was uh, advocating at the time, uh, I was involved in cruise control and you know early uh, automated continuous integration uh, and running what I would say were automated tests. And I was at a conference with Michael and he was making the point that no, no, you know, there's no 
testing is a human activity by definition. There's no such thing as an automated test. We we got we could agree as soon as we said, well, actually, what the computer is doing is checking, and uh, the idea of testing is a human activity that humans have these properties where they can sort of notice things that you didn't anticipate ahead of time. They have these um, this great uh, sort of capacity for um, noticing things that were uh, uh, unexpected, but at the same time, they're actually really terrible at following directions step by step. And so telling a human do exactly these things and look for exactly these outputs is, is, is almost criminal because you are, you know, making them into a very bad computer mm -hmm. and ignoring what's, what's useful for them as a, as a human. And what we do these days, and a lot of my clients do this, is now that we have not only cruise control, but loads and loads of mechanisms for continuous integration and continuous deployment, what we'll have is often the, the notion of, well, actually, I guess I should call it continuous delivery. I hope I've got those the right way around. What a lot of my clients do is they will have a full set of automated tests. The computer is doing all of uh, times of, of checking in a very nice computer step-by-step -step way without a human having to do it, but then they have a human in the loop, and the human in the loop says, okay, do I really want to release this right now? It's Friday afternoon at 5 o'clock, and it's a massive breaking change. Maybe I shouldn't do that, and the computers are very bad at that part. So they'll have <laughs> the automated tests all the way up to a certain point, but then a human will actually make the decision to push the button, and uh, that, I think, is a good balance between uh, uh, the kind of exploratory heuristic human world and the uh, automated com computer testing world. Yeah, that's right. And uh, the people have made this sort of balance of making sure you're en enabling humans to, to use their their attributes, their judgment and their decision power um, and getting them away from doing uh, all of the um, mechanical tasks that are appropriate for, for computers. So we end up with this sort of range of artifacts you mentioned, I think, of this idea of a of a checklist for um, a new starter, for example. Yep, this is one I've uh, been using for years, and it works really well. I'm sure I picked it up from somebody else, but I'm I'm not sure uh, where to give credit. The idea is that when you have a new starter, and you have your first new starter, you write down the five or six things that you can remember that a new starter needs to do: get an email address, learn how to check in code, uh, write a test. Um, uh, 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 pick up a, a bug and fix it. And you might write that list of things. And that's what you can remember because, of course, you've been doing things at the company for a while and you already know stuff, so it's hard for you to remember what it is you have to do. But then the last item you add to the list is add to this checklist anything that you didn't, um, that wasn't on it, that you needed to do. And what happens over time as you get a number of new starters as you grow your team is that everyone adds new stuff and the person says, oh yeah, you know what I had to do was go and see uh, Joe in finance and, and he made sure that my payslips got um, sent to the right place. And I also had to um, make sure to run this script on my computer because it um, it wasn't set up correctly. It couldn't connect to the, the network right and a whole bunch of other things. And then gradually you get a very nice checklist of things that new starters need to do and the perfect people are adding to it namely new starters because <laughs> they're the ones who know what is what it is they need to do and they're in the state of not knowing and learning so they're they're ideal to, to add to that list and and they'll discover new things over time because it turns out that what what you need to do changes over time and they're the ones who will get that learning and then encapsulate that learning in the checklist exactly it's a very nice organic way to do it and low maintenance for the manager which is my favorite part 
Right. Now, one of the things that we've gotten into kind of uh, in, a, in a big way at, at Tim over the years is something that's a, a little bit more than a checklist. Um, it's something we call a runbook. And it's typically something we'd use for operational tasks. Now, runbook is not our term. Uh, lots of people use runbooks. And I think it's interesting because they, they're kind of a hybrid between uh, a, a checklist and documentation. They they will say sort of and, and different of our runbooks have different characteristics, but they they will say it might be a set of well here are a set of steps that you need to do, and they might be run this script and then check this other thing over here. So you get you get both um, the the exact uh, tasks to do, but then also places where you use your judgment. And in running reading through some of our runbooks uh, before this podcast, one of the things I noticed was the idea that uh, having these things done by a person you could be much more forgiving about what error conditions might come up. Whereas if I was trying to write a script to see, you know, all three of these steps to sort of glue these things together, the, it's a little bit um, more fragile if we don't know all the things that might go wrong. Yeah. And you'd have to plan computer friendly actions for each of those errors. Whereas if some rare error happens and the machine you're running the script on runs out of memory, you don't have to anticipate that when you write the script. You can just say, well, look, if this script has an error, go find a human and figure out what to do. And um, that can be an instruction for the person reading the runbook. And they're capable of figuring out, yeah, I probably shouldn't go on to step six if step six says fatal error critical, do not continue. <laughs> Whereas a, a computer will happily say, well, you didn't tell me what to do in that case, so I guess I'll go on to step 17. <laughs> uh, what is it? Visual Basic has something I can never remember, but uh, I think it's I think you can you can write a step that says uh, if error continue, and um, that's one of the <laughs> very dangerous sources of of much error. So you can avoid that in this case. I can believe it. Now, that's, I'm sure some people are, are thinking of these run books and be like, well, this is terrible. Like, you really should be automating all that. And I think what happens is the areas that uh, get the most use get also the most investment automation. Uh, one thing I see here is with um, Tim, and we'll go back when you were there, Squirrel, and there was an outage. There was a wiki page. Ancient, ancient history, eight, 10 years ago. <laughs> that's right. And uh, uh, there was a wiki page, which was uh, had some steps uh, and saying, you know, check this and check that. It was sort of like a lot like um, Elizabeth heuristic cheat sheet, but it was more like the uh, outage cheat sheet. You know, here's the areas where we most likely are to detect problems. Uh, over time, uh, as we've learned more and we've invested more in automation, that sort of current state of the art for us is we have this sort of war room process. And uh, what happens is someone will will say in Slack, they'll invoke Slackbot, say there's a war room and give it the name of the problem. And that will cause a um, Google document, a shared document to be created. And it's pre-populated with roles. And um, it it's also provides you a place to capture data. And it, so it has some links. And then you get this announcement and it shares the link for everyone. It says, you know, jump in the mumble and we're all going to work together. So we've, we've, we've evolved this process from something that was simply a static document to something that's supported by scripts. And then it also it's, brings in the learning that, yep, there needs to be someone here who's going to communicate with, say, the account managers so they know there's an outage and they know when it's done. And it's all, we, we've kind of um, evolved this process. And, and at the same time, we're making uh, investment uh, to, to make the, everything smoother and to hopefully uh, maximize the amount of uh, human judgment we're getting while minimizing the amount of sort of mechanical work. So there's, for example, no one now who is manually making a copy of the template for an outage. 
which is what we probably were doing in 2008 because Slack hadn't even been invented then. <laughs> so um, it, it was nice to trace through things that I'm sure we came up with in root cause analyses and retrospectives and things like make sure to tell the account managers when uh, an outage happens and to see that that had survived into the Slack era. I'm imagining that if we come back in uh, 2030, we might see that there, you know, there's an artificial intelligence that's uh, reading this stuff and that says, yes, beep, I should go and notify the account managers. So that learning from 2008 is surviving uh, many, many years into the future, even uh, crossing technologies. So that's a, a very nice example of encapsulated learning being put to use. And I, and I think this is a, a very, for me, it's a very positive trend over time. If I step back a little bit and look at what's happened sort of over in the lifetime of my career in software, uh, we've seen a, a, a huge- Way, way back. Ancient history back into the 1990s. <laughs> exactly. Before, even before my time. That's right. Um, and I, I think it's useful to look at that. If we go back to our last episode, we talked about the value of pre-planned actions and sort of, you know, if this or when that, you know, then we'll do this task. And I think if you just if we if you just think about we're going to add up many many preplanned actions, it's like we're trying to program humans to just do mechanical steps. But luckily, that's not uh, the way that we've we've done. We've we've done a good job of shifting the division of labor between humans uh, and computers. So if I think back uh, in 1998, I was at a company called Alphablocks, and we had this giant regression testing matrix on the wall. We would literally print out this giant checklist. We were using sort of this principle here of having a checklist. And what it was, was all the rows were function points and across the- Gee, Jeffrey, what, what's a what's a function point? Oh, God. <laughs> Not all of our listeners will know. Yeah. Well, uh, effectively, what I was talking about here would be some feature saying, you know, have you done this action? Uh, uh, I mean, a very simple uh, example. Have, basically, have you used this bit of functionality? And then a, across the, the columns were the combination of what was basically every database uh, every web server we supported and um, every web browser. And um, each, each people could look up there and see what was, this was very useful, could look up and see what was done and what wasn't, and uh, then go back to your desk and, you know, do some and then go back and check things off. And we, this was our, this was our checklist for, can we release? Are we have confidence that we've not regressed? And that was very useful. But if we go forward in time by 2001, and I'm uh, back at Alphablocks, uh, I had gone and done a startup in between, and I come back, and now what we have is in, uh, we've, we've moved forward, so we have this continuous integration stuff running. There's unit testing in the day, and at night there would be this build that would um, run the nightly build that was going to be the official sort of check before QA, and sort of this is the uh, will QA look at a build? Well, only if it's past the nightly build, it's past the functional test that ran, and a lot of the concerns of the multiple environments were handled in that sort of nightly build. So you didn't need the matrix anymore. You just had the, the computer doing multiple different environments. Well, it didn't, I would say that's, unfortunately it wasn't entirely true. It was more like we got a sanity test in each environment, but we, we didn't have our, all of our functionality was not all automated, but it was a much, mm -hmm. it was a much better starting point for QA. Before we put that in place, we would come in and we would get the night, we had a nightly build, but with no tests, it might not actually work. It might not start. We had many days where we lost days of testing because actually the build simply would not start. So at least we, we had a check that we got past that. And if we go forward in the future, by the time I joined Tim, this had evolved to the point that I remember at the time, uh, one of the projects when I joined was using Jenkins and Selenium Grid to do a matrix build. 
and automatically test all the browsers with all the functionality. And now really it's what you described, which is that it is that matrix that was running for all the function points against uh, all of the web browsers. That was that was being done, taking so much of that uh, effort off of the, the QA people. And I think this trend just is continued. Um, later on, you know, like from 2012, we started moving more and more of this if then then that logic into our monitoring and metrics. So it became more and more accessible uh, rather than sort of digging through log files. I could go in to look at, say, something like graphite and, and look at a graph and say, oh, that looks weird. <laughs> and, and that's exactly like tapping into what's good for humans. Right to look at a at a graph and go, well, that that looks odd. That looks, there's an anomaly there. Nobody's logging in from Europe. Uh, that that's probably not right. <laughs> that's right, exactly. What normally we get, uh, you know, hundreds of ideas being created right now, and that's dropped down to almost nothing. Uh, even though there's no alerts going off, that's a problem. Uh, and then now we have this sort of rich set of runbooks, uh, and those those runbooks are composed uh, of all these different bits. Right, it's sort of it's there's it, they reference scripts that we've written. They they tell us to go look into in certain uh, metrics and look at these graphs, and it's really about getting this right balance of division and labor. But it's still, what we're doing, the common element is that we keep evolving this over time as we learn. In the same way that your new starters uh, are the people having new experiences, and they go and update that checklist, we we keep embedding more and more knowledge into our environment in the terms of scripts and metrics and graphs and, and runbooks. And that allows us to more and more uh, make sure we're getting the most leverage of the human's ability for judgment and perception and less and less of the sort of mechanical tasks. So for me, this is a very positive trend. Absolutely. And perhaps the most common thing among all the things we're talking about is each one of these is something our listeners can use in whatever their environment is in an appropriate way to capture their learning. So if you're coming out of a retrospective, if you've had a, an exercise where you try to look at some double loop learning you'd like to do, if you're interested in figuring out a pre-planned action, all of those are things you can capture. And I like your phrase, uh, embed into the environment, make it part of the, the normal course of business so that whether it's a checklist or a run book or an artificial intelligence, there's something that is making sure that you uh, don't forget the, the thing that you've learned because that's one of the biggest dangers. Yep, absolutely. So we'd, we'd love to hear from any of you who try some of these techniques. If you're out there uh, with some machine learning that's uh, capturing your knowledge, we'd, we'd love to hear about that. Or if you're uh, at the stage where you're just getting started with continuous integration, where, wherever your evolution might be, um, find us on troubleshootingagile.com and send us an email with, with your story. We'd, we'd love to answer questions or uh, help you think about um, any of these puzzles. That's a lot of our material comes from listeners. So uh, we'd love to hear from you. All right. Excellent. Thanks, Jeffrey. Thanks, Squirrel.